Good evening, everyone. Open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. We'll begin our study there in just a moment. But again, I want to express my appreciation to you all for being here to support the efforts here for the invitation to come. We have many who are regular members here. And we have people who are visitors from the community. We have people who are visitors from other churches. And as the song we just sang pointed out, we are one when we come together to worship Christ. And it's so important for us to remember that and think about what we share in Christ. And I certainly appreciate that. As we've been talking about in our uh, series for this week, it's based on the idea of the tipping point. And that tipping point being the fact that we uh, can imagine ourselves in the midst of this spiritual conflict where we're, I, I like to think of the picture of us being on the edge of a cliff and people are wrestling for us either to push us off the cliff or to pull us away from the cliff. Satan trying to get us to fall to his side. And God, of course, pleading with us to come to his side. And when we think about the different issues that the church faces, we talked about some modern issues yesterday. You might even say postmodern issues. And then we're going to look for the next four lessons on some issues that first century churches faced and what they were given as tools to overcome those situations. And so tonight we're going to look at the, the church at Corinth. We remember learning about the church of Corinth as far back as Acts chapter 18 when Paul spent some time in the, in the town of Corinth and establish the church there and the work that he did and the challenges that he faced and the disappointment and worry that he endured while he was there. And then we get to the two letters that we have recorded that were written to the church at Corinth and the difficulties that Paul addressed in talking to them. And so if you want to think about an easy place to start when you're looking for problems that could potentially plague the church and the Lord's people, certainly Corinth would be a place to start. And a good place where we can find some examples. It's mentioned many times, the church of Corinth, in, in our New Testament. He first visited, as we mentioned, from Acts chapter 18 in about 49 or 50 A.D. And this is going to be just a few years, uh, just over a decade after the Lord's death. And he's going about on his missionary journeys, planting these churches, as it were, and preaching in the synagogues and various places where God-fearing people were meeting together to worship the Lord. And so he spends some time there, and he resides there for 18 months, as we see in the book of Acts, chapter 18. He meets Priscilla and Aquila while he's there, who proved to be beneficial for his work and, and a good brother and sister in the work that he, he does. And they go on and travel with him, and we see them later effective in their work in teaching Apollos, who knew of John's baptism but did not yet know of the baptism of Jesus. We can see how that's important later because as you remember from the first chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, Apollos is mentioned. And in chapter 3, he's mentioned again. And so we see that he was familiar to the people there in Corinth as well. After Paul spent time in Corinth, he then traveled on to other places. And as he got word that the church there was having problems, he writes this letter between 54 and 56 AD. That's five or six years after he had been with the church there and helped to establish the work there and get it going. We understand that he probably visited again sometime between the first two letters as well. And so with the problems that, that the church there was facing, Paul gave them answers. He said, here are the spiritual solutions, the God prescribed solutions to the problems that you are facing. 
And so we know there were several problems, right? Well, what are some problems that they were facing? The first four chapters of 1 Corinthians are all about the divisions that they were facing, right? And he says, Christ is not divided. People are saying, I'm of, a, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, as if there were divisions. And he says, is Christ divided? Well, no, certainly not. And we're all here working I'm working, Apollos is working, whoever's doing the work, God is the one giving the increase and may he be glorified. Division is not something that the Lord wants to see in his church. And that's something, of course, that we sometimes have a tendency to to deal with in the modern church as well. The next few chapters are about sexual fidelity. In chapter 5, of course, we remember this scandalous problem of, of the man who is sleeping with his father's new wife and the terrible problem. And then the worst problem is that they were accepting it. In chapter 6 and 7, all about the, the importance of preserving that marital relationship and purity within that relationship. And he keeps pointing us back to Christ in all of these things. Whether it's the divisions, he says it's not a popularity contest. When it comes to our purity, he says following Christ means that you are going to keep your bodies pure. And you're going to to use them in holy ways and sanctified ways. If he is redeeming our souls, he expects us to use our bodies in ways that he has prescribed. In chapters 8 through 10, he talks about some challenges with food and that sounds like a, a funny issue, but when you think about the time, it's a specifically meat that had been offered to idols. You can imagine the problem and the moral issues that many people coming from the pagan society of Corinth would be facing when presented with this food that I, I got this at the marketplace. Yeah, it was offered to a god or a goddess, but that's okay. And we can imagine the problems that were there. And the solution to that is a Christ-like love. He says, you know what, you're thinking too much about yourself and you need to be thinking about your brother or your sister and whether what you're doing and how it affects them. A love for Christ and a love for others causes us, as we talked about yesterday, to deny ourselves. And that's the solution that he gave to them there. The next several chapters are about the worship gathering, whether it be about the proper way to remember the Lord's uh, death on the cross and his sacrifice for us whether it be about using the spiritual gifts that were given in that time or how to conduct an orderly worship service and that they should be orderly and not distracting and he talks about the importance of when worshipers come together that they're serving one another they're acting out of love for one another and when that happens the other people are built up and visitors can be built up and they can hear the word of god proclaimed in chapter 15 he talks about the resurrection the resurrection is the, really the anchor point for Christianity. He says as much. He says that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we of all people are most pitiable. Shame on us for believing such a lie of Christ wasn't raised from the dead. What are we doing trying to live these lives of purity? Why do we care if we offend other people if there's nothing after this life? If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then this is all useless and futile. On the other hand, Christ was raised from the dead. And he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And he says, the Christian life is anchored in the resurrection. That one thing, it unifies us. It motivates sexual purity. It motivates us to love one another. And it gives us hope for a victory over death. In the second letter, I think about the the chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, where Paul recounts his experiences and what motivates him, and what his ambitions are. 
that drive him. And he says, the, the love of Christ compels us. And he, he says, I make it my aim to please Christ. He says, if you're seeking wealth, if you're seeking uh, earthly honor and riches and, and all of those things, well, you're missing the point. He says, what it is to be strong is to embrace the cross, which is weakness. And it's a little bit of a paradox, isn't it? It's something that, that is, it's the opposite of what you might think. He says that when you look at the cross, it causes you to be transformed into someone who loves and serves and, and reaches greatness that way, greatness in his kingdom. This is not an extent of all of the problems that Corinth was facing, nor is it an exhaustive uh, description of, of the solutions they were given. Nor tonight are we going to go down this list of six things and look at all of the scriptures that pertain to, to Paul's answers to these problems. But we are going to look at three answers that I think summarize all the things that God has, has instructed them as far as correcting these problems. And it's problems not just that Corinth had, but it's problems that we might have as Christians today, wherever you attend, in the local church where you are. Uh, the churches still suffer with some of these problems and whatever the problem is, if it's not on the list before you, it can still be solved by these three things we're going to talk about tonight. So the first thing I want to talk about that Paul says, if you want to fix these problems that are, that are causing these great divisions between you, these problems where you can't get along with one another, you're accepting sin, you're forcing things on other people that's hurting them and causing them to stumble, the first thing you need to do is you need to mature a little bit. Here in the South, we have a more blunt way of saying it. They probably say it everywhere. It says you need to grow up a little bit. You need to grow up. And we do need to grow up in Christ. We talked yesterday about, yesterday about Ephesians chapter 4 and how the whole purpose of the, the God-prescribed uh, order of the church and the way that he has prescribed it to be administered and organized is so that we may all grow up to be mature, to be more like Christ, not like children that are blown this way and that by every wind of doctrine. I would suggest that the problems that they faced were because they weren't mature. It's because they should have been more mature, but over these five or six years, they just haven't gotten there yet. Now, over the course of time, if they listened to Paul's instructions, they hopefully would have fixed these problems as they grew and matured. But what they needed is they needed deeper roots yet. When you think about the church here at Northfield, it's been around for longer than five or six years. Hopefully that means we've got a little bit more maturity than the church at Corinth. And I would dare say that more of us have studied the Bible for a longer period of time than the Corinthian brethren. And so hopefully we've got the maturity and the roots there. But we need to remember lack of maturity, even if we feel like we're mature, but we still act immaturely from time to time. That can be devastating to a local work. And what we saw in Corinth is that they were immature and following things that were promising or seemed promising to them that it would be better things but in the end it was bringing about condemnation consider colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 because of the immaturity that paul had faced in other places he wrote this to the church at Colossae: see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to christ Essentially, what he's saying here is that don't be led away by anything that is not according to Christ. We could have put this verse in yesterday, but you see how that's not a new problem. People were saying things. They sounded good. They were appealing to the ears, yet they were not of Christ. 
And so they were either tolerating error, they might have even been circulating error, and it was causing these divisions and problems. They needed to grow up in Christ. What does a mature church look like, though? How does a church demonstrate its maturity? I believe that a sign of maturity is correctly applying Bible wisdom. Correctly applying Bible wisdom. The Bible is a book of wisdom. Sometimes we think the book of wisdom is Proverbs. Maybe we'll lump Ecclesiastes in there. Maybe we'll even throw in Job if we're having a good day. But those are not the only books of wisdom in the Bible. Isn't that ridiculous when you think about it? The whole book is a book of wisdom. Genesis is a book of wisdom. Exodus, book of wisdom, on down the list. I won't do all 66. But every book in the Bible is designed to show us, here is a case. Let's look at the facts. Let's look at what happened. Here are the consequences of these actions, thoughts, behaviors, words. And here is the remedy. Here is the fix to this. You read that, you can either say, no, I'm going to do that anyway. You've missed the point. You're not applying the wisdom that you should have been learning. If you say, oh, I see this is what I'm supposed to avoid. Well, you know, from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 2 and 3, there was that option for wisdom. Are you going to seek after wisdom? Are you going to trust in God? Are you going to try to take it for yourself and figure it out on your own? Figuring it out on your own doesn't really work all that well. Spiritually, we need to be considering the grace that God freely offers to us and the wisdom that he gives us. Remember 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He's saying here, what you need to do is you need to consider what we've written to you or what we've taught you, and you need to study those things, and you need to implant them in your hearts so that's who you become, and that determines your actions. And if we misunderstood, we need to make the corrections. We need to return back to doctrine that is sound. That's a mark of maturity. An immature church accepts false things and maybe goes off the course and never does anything to fix it. Look at chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. There was a problem there. The immaturity showed itself not just in that sin, that individual is immature, but the church showed immaturity because they did nothing to fix it. So we must show signs of maturity in in applying the principles of godliness and of wisdom in our lives and as a church. And so how do we mature? How do we grow? How do we gain this maturity that's going to help us to overcome some of the problems we face? Well, It's through learning how to apply truth. We talked about yesterday how we need to teach our young people not just what to think by reading the Bible to them, but how to think. How to glean the wisdom that God is trying to teach us through his word. Don't just say, here's the book of Proverbs, figure it out. But say, here's the story of the nation of Israel. What are we learning from this? Here's the promise to Abraham. Here's how it flows through the Gospels and the life of Christ and the fulfillment of that. What are the lessons we draw from that? Here are the sufferings of the people of Israel in captivity. How do we apply that to our lives? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20, Paul says to them, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, 
but in your thinking, be mature. Don't be children in your thinking. As Christians, we can't afford to take lightly the words of Scripture. We can't just say, well, I've got a a magazine full of Bible verses that I can shoot at someone if they ask me a question about whether or not they have to be baptized. What we need to do is be able to teach them what that's all about, like we mentioned yesterday. What about chapter 3? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes to them here and he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behave, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human or carnal? So you're not thinking like a spiritual person. You're not thinking with the mind of Christ if you're, if you're still comparing yourself with other people. That's not what Christ is all about. He says you need to grow up in your thinking. You need to be adults in your thinking, not children. We need to grow to maturity, just like the church then needed maturity. And even in a well-established church like the church here at Northfield Boulevard, we need to press on to greater maturity. One mark of maturity is realizing how much more you could go. It's like the mark of wisdom or of knowledge is you realize how much more there is to know and how much more wisdom you can have. A mark of maturity is to keep growing towards greater maturity. When you say, well, we're pretty mature, we're good, that's when problems seep in. Let's move on. Maturity is one problem that that Paul said, uh, this would be a great solution to your problems. Maturity. What about unity? Obviously, we might apply this to the first four chapters. They were suffering with disunity, disharmony. Uh, But he says unity is something that is fundamental to Christianity. And it's fundamental to the success and the well-being and growth of a church. Looking for chapter 1. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. A familiar passage to us all, but this is what he starts the letter with. It's arguably one of the most uh, consequential problems they were facing. And everything else seemed to to stem from this. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He says here is the focal point, what he'll say again in chapter 15 and many other times, that the cross, the the cross is the fundamental message of the gospel. And unity is what the cross brings. When we all come together as servants of Christ and and mold ourselves to his image and renew our minds to the way that he thinks, we're going to be unified. That's That's the natural outcome of that. But we can see that the discord that they had affected the way they treated one another. It affected the way they thought about one another, the way they perceived other Christians even. 
it's hard for us to put ourselves in that situation where there's such a cultural difference uh, that that there was just true discord and, and animosity between them. It's harder today. Maybe 50 or 60 years ago, that would have been an easier thing to understand. But there were some serious culture, cultural divides there. And not only that, they were applying these spiritual divides that were not, not anything that Christ had prescribed to them. But it was affecting their treatment of one another, affecting their personal discipleship. So what do we learn from that? Well, we need to constantly appeal to unity. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, you remember the first six verses there? It's all about the oneness that we have through what God has revealed to us. Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul writing here, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Is there any other verse that speaks out so much about the unity that we have, that we ought to have? He says, if there's only one faith, one Lord, one baptism, where's the division? Where does that come in? Well, the division doesn't come by anything that the Lord has supplied us. When it comes to the cross of Christ, there is no place for division. There's nothing given that the Lord says, here are some divisions that you need to keep amongst yourself. He says you need to plead for unity. Back in chapter 2, back in chapter 2 of this same book in Ephesians, verse 13 beginning. Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, speaking of the Gentiles here, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you that were far off and peace to use to those who were near for through him. We both have access in one spirit to the father. What is he saying here? He, keep, he keeps saying there used to be two, but through Christ, there is now one. And then in chapter four, he says, there's one, this one, that one, 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 the unity, the bond of peace. That's what we aim for. But we need to understand that unity is a challenging thing for us to approach. But unity has to be based on understanding one another. Especially in cases where there is disunity and there's problems and division from things that are just not that important. And it tends to be in a local congregation of people that know each other well. Most of the problems that come up from time to time are from things that really, in the grand scheme of things, aren't that important. It's important to me when it's what I'm thinking about. And I want that to be important to you, which is why I'm bringing it to you. But we need to understand that when it's issues of insignificant personal matters of opinion, or even things that are important matters of opinion, we need to still seek to serve one another and live in that harmony. Think about chapter 9. Chapter 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians 
Uh, we won't turn and read that, but we know the issue there of offering meat. He says, you know, that's, that's not really something that should be causing a problem here. Just do things to the glory of God and don't worry about uh, causing a, a brother to stumble. In Philippians chapter two, or chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul writes, I entreat Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I've heard it said that it's, it's wise that the Holy Spirit did not reveal to us what conflict they were having. Because our tendency would be to pick a side. And that sort of goes against the whole point of what he's saying here. He says it doesn't matter what was causing them to be, be divided. What matters is that they learn to agree in the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 27. And this is on the heels of him hearing that people were preaching the gospel in some twisted effort to add to his bondage. And he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I love that verse. He says, I want you to be standing firm in one spirit, one mind, and working side by side. Church of Corinth, they were not working side by side. Sometimes today, we're not always working side by side for the glory of God. But he says, that's what I want more than anything. I want you to be working together. I think a wise question for us to ask, though, when there is disharmony in the church, is what is the cause here? What's at the root of this problem? Once we figure out what's at the root of this problem, that gives us some idea of where to go from there and how to respond to that. I do want us to turn over to the book of Romans for just a few moments this evening. We're not going to read three chapters in our time tonight, but you know the passage well. You know the, the content of this cha- these chapters, that there were matters of opinion. There were some issues that were causing division in the church at Rome. And Paul lays out some ways that we can handle division in some very practical means. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. He says there's going to be people in the church that don't have the strength of faith that maybe you have. He says, welcome them in. Because God calls all people who believe in him, no matter how strong their faith is at the beginning. Do you think the apostles had strong faith when Jesus called them? Well, no, they didn't. But they grew. They didn't have a strong faith by the time he died on the cross. And it wasn't until after the fact that they developed that strength of character. But he says, welcome them in, but don't start quarreling over opinions. What about verse 4? He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, that is the, the servant of the Lord, and you're not to pass judgment on him in matters of opinion. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. Some passages here about not not judging the opinions of another, but only doing things that are working to upbuild and to encourage other people. In chapter 15, verse 7. He says again, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In the next chapter, chapter 16, at the end of the book, verse 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, 
to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught and avoid them. It says, if there's people causing divisions, you need to avoid those people and also make sure you're not in the list of people that are being avoided because you're causing divisions. If you want to be successful, if you want to help other people grow, don't sweat the small stuff and help everybody to grow together. It's too easy for us to get caught up in personal issues and personal conflicts that don't really matter. The harder job is to focus on the spiritual things that are of greater consequence and put the effort in to overlook things that are annoying and that might really be a pet peeve to me or to you. And to get past the humanity of our brothers and sisters and to see them for their soul and to work together because we're concerned with their soul more than we're concerned with their uh, with my personal opinions or their personal opinions. We work towards unity. And some tips here we might think if there's personal judgment, it's not the church's place to judge. We talked about the color of carpets. That's not that's not a place for us to get up publicly and say, well, anybody who voted for the forest green carpet. You know, they just need to go somewhere else. That's not the place for the church. And that seems like, you know, of course, that's a a silly uh, example to use. But it proves the point. We we make judgments over much smaller things. We need to accept opinions. But if it's doctrinal, we're on the other end of the spectrum. We must take a stand. We cannot allow for that to permeate, for that to exist in the Lord's church. That has to be taken care of. It has to be excised from the body of Christ before it spreads and leavens the whole lump. And so we need to identify the cause of the division. That's important. Where is it coming from? What's the source of this? Is it a personal opinion? Or is it something that's legitimately important of scriptural value? We need to be aware of that. So Paul says the church at Corinth and churches today need maturity. And he says that they need unity. And finally, I suggest he... He says they need love. They need love. And we sang about that tonight. And David, I appreciate your songs. They tied in perfectly. It's almost like you were tipped off as to what my points were in tonight's lesson. Of course, he puts the slideshow on here so I don't have to do it when I get here. Can you think of a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul might have something to say about the importance of love and how it functions in the church? Absolutely. If you're not already in chapter 13, that's where we're going to be. And really, we've got a section here that starts just before chapter 13, and it goes just past chapter 13. And it's this beautiful section of the love of Christ exemplifying itself in members of his body, in the way they treat one another, and in the way they treat other people of the human race. I don't think I want to try to read all of those verses tonight, because I want to be able to preach the rest of the week. And I don't want to put anybody on the spot to take volunteers. But consider verse 31 of the previous chapter. Paul had been telling them about the spiritual gifts and the appropriate way to utilize those in the the mutual upbuilding of the church there. What they're for, how to do that. But then he transitions with this beautiful segue into what it's really all about. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. Do you think it was upbuilding? Do you think it was encouraging to hear someone speak in tongues that they were not trained to speak and hear somebody interpret that or to bring a message of prophecy from the Lord? That would have been incredible. That would have been upbuilding. That would have been encouraging. But Paul says, guess what? If you're in a church that doesn't have that, which would be us, he says there's still an even better way for you to be encouraged. 
and that more excellent way is love. He says that the prophetic powers, the speaking in tongues, the healing, all of these things are just a racket if you do it without love. He says in verse 3, If I give away all I have, deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All of the things we do need to be motivated by love. If we find ourselves suffering from immaturity, we don't really want to give that up. We're not ready to grow up yet. And we find that there's divisions in the church, perhaps reflecting on the love of Christ and the love we ought to have for one another will motivate us to get to where we need to be. We will, we will read over in chapter 16, beginning of verse 13. As he's bringing this first letter to the Corinthians to a close, he says in verse 13, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have, been, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. But he says in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. That's a good memory verse. We want to have a memory verse for this week. I've already told you that I don't have any memory verse skills anymore. Not since college. But what an excellent summary to this letter. If Paul had only sent a letter to them that had these these few words written on it, let all that you do be done in love, that would have solved their problems. Of course, they would have had to really think a lot more about it. Would have needed some more details, perhaps. Jesus said basically the same thing, didn't he? You know, what's, what's it all about? He said the most important thing is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And the second commandment's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that God has ever wanted from his creation was to love him and to love each other. And if we love God, we're going to love each other. And if we don't love each other, we don't really love God. I think John had something to say about that in his letters at the end of the New Testament. And it's easy for us to say, yeah, we got love. We got to love. We need to love more. But until we decide, maybe I'm not loving enough. Maybe I personally could love more and should love more. We push ourselves out of our comfort zones to places we've never been before. We challenge ourselves and say, How can I show the love of Christ to others just a little bit more? What we need to realize is that all behavior that is relative to Christ, it stems from the love of Christ. As Paul said, the love of Christ compels us. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, beginning, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And I love this part, this part, outdo one another in showing honor. If there needs to be competition in the church, let's have a competition about who can treat others the nicest. Who can do the most good works for other people. And then at the end of the day, we don't keep score. Isn't that wonderful? Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What about those last, that last verse? Contribute to the needs of the saints. This doesn't mean when the collection plate comes around, you know, throw a few extra bills in the tray. Maybe it means that. 
Maybe it means reflecting on how much you give to the contribution. But maybe it means figuring out what the saints here need and go give them that need. If they need a ride to the doctor's office, throwing a few extra dollars to the plate might not fix that particular problem. Might fix some other problems, but maybe you can do something else to contribute to the needs of the saints. And when it says seek to show hospitality, it doesn't mean that if there's an opportunity thrown in your lap and somebody says, hey, can you, can you host this thing? Can you do this thing for us? We really need you to sign up for this thing. That's good. Take those opportunities. But don't just wait for there to be a sign-up list for hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Look for ways to show love to other people. Don't you think that would fix some problems? If we're, if we're actively caring that much for others, of course it would. In the next chapter, he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you realize he quoted about half the Ten Commandments there? You know the other half of the Ten Commandments, roughly, is the other part? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Half of it's love God and the other half is love others. He says, summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If we say, oh, we, we need to work really hard not to have divisions and not to accept sin in our midst. Those are good, noble goals. But if we just look at ourselves and say, I'm not going to do anything wrong to another person. A lot of problems just disappear. Because that's a lot of problems that are included in that. What a wonderful thing we can do when we understand the the love of Christ. Especially in the face of the problems that we endure today. And the problems that you struggle with here at Northfield. And that churches across the world struggle with and different problems and different struggles. When we see the problems that we're faced with, shouldn't we lean even more heavily on the love of Christ and try even harder to realize that we're all in this together and to love each other even more fervently? We're going to turn to 1 John chapter 2. And that'll be the last passage that we look at this evening. 1 John chapter 2, beginning of verse 3. John says this, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. When we look at, look at the church at Corinth, it's not hard to see that certain problems like these can arise in the Lord's church even today. But it's also not hard to see that these simple 
in word solutions, challenging in practice, are still applicable for us today and useful for us today. We need to grow in maturity and our unity with one another and our love for one another. That's what the church then needed to overcome their problems. That's what the church today needs to overcome its problems. And so I ask you tonight, if you take a look at yourself as a child of God and you're lacking in one of these areas, why don't you pray for strength? Why don't you determine that you're going to work just that much harder to shore up your part of this load that we share together so that the Lord's church may grow just a little bit more. And you know, if we all make that effort together and make that our aim and we try to outdo each other in showing honor and love, then Lord's church is going to grow by leaps and bounds. And if that's what you want, well, that's a noble aim. If you're outside of Christ though, and you wonder what it's all about to experience the love of Christ, and you've never had that, that guilt removed from you. You can have that guilt pulled away even tonight through the blood of Christ and baptism. If you believe that he's the son of God, that he died for you to save you from your sins. And that you believe if you confess him as Lord of your life, that he is the one who is your master and you'll follow him. If you repent of your sins, determined to sin no more. You may go on your way rejoicing when you have your sins washed away in baptism. If that's appealing to you, I pray that you'll consider even tonight coming forward as we stand and sing.